Let's open our Bibles today to Acts chapter 2. I want to talk to you today about the first sermon of the church. Now, many of us have been in church for many, many years, and we have heard not hundreds, but thousands and thousands of sermons. Some of them have been good. Some of them not so good. Some of them have been long. Some of them have been short. Some of the sermons we have heard have moved us. Some have made us laugh. Some have made us cry. Some have stirred our hearts. Sometimes we hear a sermon, we don't feel anything. We think, well, I didn't get it today. I didn't feel anything today. But remember this, even on those sermons, the message is still being preached and the word of God is still being planted into your heart. Every week, you're not gonna leave here with some, you know, the most emotional experience that you've ever had and neither am I. That happens sometime, but it doesn't always happen. Now today, we come to study the very first sermon of the church preached by Simon Peter. Now, before we get into the sermon, I want to take just a moment to think about the preacher, this man named Simon Peter. What do we know about Peter? We know, first of all, that he was a flawed man. He was one of the disciples of Jesus, but he was flawed. He had a quick tongue. Sometimes he spoke first and then he thought later. We've all done that. He had a quick temper. On one occasion, he cut a man's ear off. He lost his temper, took a sword, and cut a man's ear off. And that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was defending Jesus, and while we admire his passion, we know that you shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have done that. No, the violence was wrong. And he was also a man who quickly turned away from the Lord. There in Caiaphas' courtyard, the high priest's courtyard, Jesus had been arrested, being mistreated, and three separate times, G uh, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. And so he was a flawed, flawed person. But not only was he flawed, he was forgiven. After the resurrection, Jesus had forgiven Simon Peter for all of his sins. He was cleansed. He had been made right with God, and he was forgiven, and he knew that. It's always been interesting to me that the person who preached the first sermon of the church was a man who had been given a second chance. And it says to me today that God is a God of second chances. Amen? So he was flawed. He was forgiven and he was filled with the Spirit. When Peter, and we'll get into this sermon today, you're gonna see he's bringing the heat, he's bringing the power. He was filled with the Spirit, and he knew that it wasn't his message, it was God's message. It wasn't his strength. It was Christ in him and through him that preached this powerful, powerful sermon. So there's a little background on the uh, preacher. Flawed, forgiven, and filled with the Spirit. Say that with me. Flawed, forgiven, and filled with the Spirit. We can all relate to that. Now about the congregation. If I'm visiting a church, I want to know something about the preacher, but I want to know something about the church. What kind of people are these? And so we know that this congregation on the day of Pentecost that Peter was preaching to was a very diverse congregation. There were people from different nations, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different political views, different political persuasions, different financial statuses, all kind of different backgrounds. Now, in Acts 2, let's begin in verse number 1 so we get the full feel of what's going on here. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were together, together. No, no sin between them and God, no strife between them. They were right with God. And in verse two, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. We talked about that word suddenly last week. That's how God acts. Not necessarily soon, but when he acts, it is sudden and it is quick. And this is what's happening here. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Spirit. That's why I said Peter was Spirit-filled. They all were, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They're speaking languages now they've never learned. Think about this. Jewish people from all over the world have come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. These people from different nations speak different languages. God wanted them to hear how they could be saved in their own language. So he performed a miracle and he enabled these disciples to preach and speak in languages they had never learned. And in verse number five, it says, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. So it was a large congregation. And it was a diverse congregation. And people within the congregation didn't know all the other people within the congregation. But as we begin to study more about this, we begin to get something about the makeup of the individual people within that congregation. And we discover some of them were confused. Look again in verse number six. It says, the multitude came together and were confused. Why? Because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And so if you were from Ethiopia or Libya or Egypt or Mesopotamia or, or Cappadocia or some of these other places, and now you're in Jerusalem and you're hearing people that you know are living in Galilee, they don't know your language and yet they're speaking your language. And it was very confusing to them. So some were confused. Some were amazed. Look in verse number seven. They were all amazed and marveled saying to one, or one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we each in our own language, our own dialect in which we were born can hear them. Verse number 12. So they were all amazed and perplexed. So they're kind of amazed and confused all at the same time, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? So think about this. In this, in this congregation, you've got this flawed preacher who's been forgiven and he's filled with the Spirit and he's standing up there and he's preaching to this group, this diverse group, and some of them are confused, and some of them are amazed, and some of them are critical. Look in verse number 13. Others mocking said, they're full of new wine. And so there was an element in there that said, there's nothing to this. Y'all talking about this is a miracle. This is the Holy Spirit. This is God. This is nothing. These people are drunk. And they were critical, and they were criticizing what was happening, criticizing what God was doing. And did you know 2,000 years later in churches all across the nation and around this world, when a man of God stands up to preach and looks his congregation in the eye, in that room, you have these same things going on. Some are confused, even today. Some of you may be in church for the very first time. Maybe you came to see somebody get baptized and you're kind of confused. Why, why would they get baptized? What are all these songs? Everybody's raising their hands, singing to God, and now we're all sitting down and being quiet, and some man I don't even know is standing up there behind some pulpit, and he's got a Bible open, and he's telling us what the Bible says, and this just doesn't make any sense to me. Some here today are probably confused. It's true in every church. Some, though, many, though, here are amazed. And we come to church and we think about how good God's been to us and how he has forgiven us and sustained us and helped us. And we sing these songs, not just because we're going through the motions, but out of our heart, God, that's true for me. What you did to that hymn writer, that songwriter, you have done it to me. But did you know, and I, it, it, we've been largely spared this in Pasadena, but every now and then you'll hear something. There'll be somebody who's critical, somebody who says something that's negative or that's just downtrodden or that's intended to kind of pull you down or to bring you down. Sometime a person say, you know, I came to church on Sunday, but it was just too hot in there in that room. It was too cool in that room. The room's too big. The room's not big enough. 
The music's too loud. Music's not loud enough. Preaching's too long. Preaching's not long enough. I've never heard that one, actually, that preaching's not. I don't want to hear that criticism, so I have to go on with it and preach on. But the criticism, sometimes you can be in a service like this and preach the sermon, give the invitation. Nobody gets saved. You can walk out and be critical and say, well, nothing happened today. Sometimes just the opposite can happen. You can preach the sermon, give the invitation, heaven comes down, and 25 people stand up saying they're saved and they're professing their faith in Christ. And you could walk out of here with a critical spirit and say, I don't believe all those people got saved. I don't believe that's real. Well, we don't know whether it's real or not. That's why we're trying to follow up on these decisions, but, but we have to take them for their word and, and try to help them as best we can. But we're not here to cast doubt on people when they make a decision. We're here to affirm people and help people to understand their decision and make sure that they have come to true repentance and genuine faith in Jesus Christ. But we should never question a person's decision. We should encourage that person and make sure they understand what they're doing. But if you have a critical spirit, some people do, you can always find something to criticize in a church. And so this was the environment that Peter was preaching to on the day of Pentecost. Now, let's take it one step further. Now let's get into what I'm most interested in. Not just the preacher and not just the people, but let's get into the sermon itself. Let's break this down. Now, as I have read and studied this sermon preparing for today, there are some things about this sermon that are very interesting to me and very obvious to me. And the first thing I noticed in Peter's sermon is this. It was filled with truth. It was filled with truth. Look in verse number 14. Again, in verse 13, they said, these are all full of new wine. They're drunk. So Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them, now here, here's how he begins his sermon. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my word. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. He didn't start out quoting scripture. He didn't start out talking about Jesus. He started out addressing something that was being said in this culture that wasn't true. And he said straight on, these men, these people are not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. What he was saying is they're filled with the spirit. What's happening here is, is of God. It is of the spirit. It is not the result of alcohol abuse. And it says to me that as Christians, we should speak those things that are true. Not only, certainly true according to the word of God, we can't pervert and twist and make the Bible say what it didn't say or what we wish it said. We have to be true to the word of God, but not only to the Bible, we have to be true to truth. We have to speak truth, not just biblical truth, but truth. And sometimes a Christian, a well-meaning Christian can hear something on the news or from some political leader, maybe that they like or they, they voted for them or they follow them and they support them. And so this person or they watch their news show and this person says something and what the person is saying is not true. It is a lie. In fact, many times the person who is saying it himself or herself, they know it's a lie. And yet if we like that person, we hear them say it. And so we just believe that it is true. And then we can mimic that and we can copy that and we can just pass on things that are completely not true. We've seen this in the Middle East this past week, the tragedy that is happening in Israel and the, the horror and the tragedy of that Baptist hospital in Gaza being bombed. And yet many were saying that was bombed by the Israeli defense forces. So that, that got out there. 
But then as the investigation went on, said, no, this is absolutely not true. That was a rocket gone awry from Hamas. But I'm just saying, if somebody stands up and says, well, that was from, and, and if somebody else hears that, they just pass that on. Listen to me, friend. If people can't trust us to speak truth about what's happening in the world, how are they gonna trust us to speak truth about the Bible? And so the question is not what did somebody say or what was reported. The question is, what is truth? And we have to align ourselves with truth. So his sermon was, it started out and he's preaching truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, the church is described as the pillar and the ground of truth. And we're duty bound as Christians and certainly as preachers to say what is true, even if it's not always what everybody wants to hear. And Peter's sermon was that way. Number two, it was filled with scripture. His sermon was soaked in scripture. Last week, I counted the verses in this sermon, the recorded verses in this sermon. Not everything in this sermon is recorded, but there are 26 verses in this sermon that are recorded from Peter. Of that, 11 of those verses are quotes from the Old Testament. He quoted from Joel chapter two. He quoted from Psalm chapter 16. He quoted from Psalm 110. Over 42% of this sermon, Peter's doing what? He's just quoting scripture, quoting the old. He's not reading it, he's quoting it. It's hidden in his heart. The spirit of God is bringing it to his mind. Bam, like a fire hydrant, the word of God is coming out. And sermons like, should be like that today. Did you know that perhaps the three most, and take the perhaps out, the three most important words that any preacher could say at the beginning of his sermon are these three words, open your Bible. Why? Because when we open our Bible, we find out what God says. You didn't come to church today to hear what John said or what John thinks or what John's opinion is. Who cares? The only thing that matters is what God said. And so when Peter's preaching this sermon, he is preaching like a machine gun and he is firing out Old Testament scriptures that these Jewish people would have known. Let's get a feel for this in verse number 16. But this, he says, is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men dream dreams. And he quotes more from this chapter in Joel. And what he's saying is what is happening here at Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, this is what God promised hundreds of years ago, and now it's being fulfilled. And down in verse 21, he said, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul quoted that in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. Peter is preaching that here. I quote it all the time. It's one of the great verses of the Old Testament. But Peter's sermon was filled with scripture. What does God say? And then it was filled with Jesus. Now think about this. Put yourself in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. You're watching this man. You don't even know who he is. You know that he knows Jesus. You can tell he's flawed. He's speaking as though he's forgiven. He's got some kind of power. You may not fully understand it. He's filled with the Spirit. And there you are listening to this. And this man, with courage, with boldness, with confidence, with assurance, with power, is preaching a sermon of truth, not lies, of Scripture, not his opinion. And it is filled with Jesus. Simon Peter was a Jesus preacher. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The whole sermon is about Jesus. Him we preach. We're called to preach Jesus. Now, as we break down how 
Peter preached about Jesus. I've put these categories down and I want us to see this. We'll just look at this verse by verse. First of all, he's preaching about Jesus' unlimited power. Look in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him and in your midst, as you yourselves also know. He's saying this Jesus, this man Jesus, has unlimited power. He can raise the dead. He can heal the sick. He can heal the broken. He can, he can put broken pieces back together. And he talked about his unlimited power. But then he talked about his substitutionary death. Look in verse 23. Because in verse 23, we see that God was the one who was behind the death of Christ. It's part of his plan from eternity past. And yet the people who crucified him, and not just those, all of us are responsible. Look at it. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Peter's preaching and he's saying to these Jews from all over the world, you were the one who crucified Jesus. Some of them thinking, I didn't crucify Jesus. The Roman soldiers crucified Jesus. I didn't have anything to do with the arrest of Jesus. I wasn't even here. I was down in Egypt. I was over in Libya. I was in Cappadocia. What do you mean I'm the one who crucified Jesus? What was Peter saying? Peter was saying it was your sins that put Jesus on the cross. Now, Peter was aware of his own sins. Always he was describing himself as the sinful man. But here in this sermon, he's not talking about his own sin. He's preaching now in the second person. You, it was your sins. He's not running for office or trying to be elected or be popular. He's just straight on Bible preacher. And he said, it was your sins that put Jesus on the cross. And did you know a person can't be saved, whether they're a child, a teenager, an adult? No one can be saved until they have an awareness that it was their sins that killed Jesus. You know, we feel comfortable talking about, well, nobody's perfect. Everybody has sinned. All, you know, Everybody, you know, we, but let me tell you something. You can't come to Jesus to be saved and say, now, Lord, as you know, everybody sinned and, and I'm, I'm part of everybody. So we've all sinned. No, you can't be saved like that because there's no conviction in that. There's no repentance in that. There's no brokenness in that. There's no genuine confession in that. That's just accepting your lot in life as part of the human race. To be saved, you come to Jesus and you get on your knees aware of your own sins and you say in essence to Jesus, not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And when we come to Jesus like that, we're saved. It's our own sins. Let me ask you this. Has there ever been a time in your life when you became aware of your sins? I saw a text between services. I was in such a hurry, I didn't have time to read it all. But I read a line from a man who was in the first service. He said, John, I was in Alaska years ago. And while in Alaska, I became aware of my sins, that I had sinned, that I had fallen short. And not only that, but that it was my sins that put Jesus on the cross. And so Peter is a strong, he's a manly preacher, and he's preaching now about the substitutionary death of Jesus. And not only that, he's preaching about his triumphant resurrection. Look in verse 24. Whom God raised up, Jesus was raised up by God, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Did you know the heart of this message? If you want to sum it up in three words, the heart of this message is this. Jesus 
is alive. Say that with me. Jesus is alive. Say it again. You believe that? Say amen. He's alive. See, Peter's in Jerusalem. Everybody knew Jesus had been killed, but he's preaching now and saying, yes, he was, and it was because of your sins and my sins, but this Jesus whom you killed, God has raised up, and he is now alive. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. We know that he is living whatever men may say. We hear, see his hand of mercy. We hear his voice of cheer, and just the time we need him, he's always near. As Christians... We're the only religious group that worships a living Lord. A living Lord. Our our king is alive. He's not lying in some tomb. The song said he's alive and coming soon. Jesus is alive. And Peter's preaching that. Death couldn't hold him. So what is he saying? Death has been conquered. He's saying companionship has been provided. Look in verse 25. He's now quoting out of Psalm 16. For David says concerning Jesus. David lived about a 1,000 years before Jesus was born. (laughs) He's talking about Jesus. And he said, I foresaw the Lord uh, always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And he's saying, I have companionship with the Lord. And now joy is available. Look in verse 28. You have made known to me the ways of life and will make me full of joy in your presence. I wrote this in my notes. Because Jesus is alive. Now think about this. I don't have to fear death, I don't have to be alone, and I don't have to be miserable. Jesus conquered death, he's with me all the time, and he gives us joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, not only is he preaching about his resurrection, he's preaching about his exaltation. Look in verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord, he's in the exalted place at the right hand of the Father. That word Lord means master. You know the reason a lot of people don't get saved? They don't want anybody telling them what to do. You know the reason a lot of people, they say they're atheists? I don't even think they are. I think a lot of people who say they're atheists, they're really not atheists. They just hope there is no God. And the reason they hope there is no God is because if there is one, they're in trouble. But the reason they hope there's no God is they don't want any God regulating their morality, their finances, their life. There are many people who say nobody, including God, if there be one, is going to tell me how to live my life. And you may feel that way today. Nobody's going to tell me what to do with my money. Nobody's going to tell me how to live my life. Nobody's going to tell me I can't live with somebody I'm not married. Nobody's going to tell me I can't do it. Nobody's telling me that. Friend, let me say this to you. You can't be saved saying Jesus is not your Lord. We say, I want Jesus as my Savior. But now this Lord, you can't have Jesus with Savior as Savior without having Jesus as Lord. Now we have to grow and progress and become what he wants us to be. But he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He's Lord, and not only that, he's Christ. He's the promised Messiah. And that's what Peter's saying. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the ones who prophesied about the coming of Jesus, about the Messiah, he is here, and it is Jesus. Now, you still listen? Say amen. 
What are the results of this sermon? Filled with truth, not lies. Filled with scripture, not opinions. Filled with Jesus. Well, I'll tell you what the result is. It brought conviction of sin. Look in verse number 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That word cut, they were pierced. Literally, they were stabbed. The idea here, suddenly convicted. Suddenly convicted. They didn't intend to be convicted. Suddenly, that's how the Holy Spirit is. As I said last week, you don't just wake up one day and lollygag down to the church and say, well, I think today maybe I'll get saved. No, you can't take the Holy Spirit out of salvation. You can't come to the Father unless you're drawn by Jesus and by the Spirit. And you can't come to Jesus unless you are. But they were cut to the heart. And notice what their question was after they were cut to the heart. Men and brethren, what shall we do? This man's just told us it was our sins that put him on the cross. This man's just told us Jesus is Lord. He's master. He's boss. He's king. And they're cut to the heart of thinking about their own sins. And the question they ask, what shall we do? I'm afraid today in American churches and American Christianity and with some American sermons, there's so little truth, there's so little scripture, and there's so little Jesus that when the whole thing's over, nobody's saying, what shall we do? People are walking out saying, where shall we eat? Where shall we eat? That was good. I enjoyed that. Everybody was nice. Where shall we eat? What game shall we watch? What game? Texans off today. What game shall we watch? Or how shall we spend the rest of the day? If you walk out of here saying, where shall we eat? What game shall we watch? Or how shall we spend the day? Either I failed or you failed. Friend, if I'm preaching it right, and if you're listening right, the question, the follow-up question to a sermon is not where shall we eat, but what shall we do? They were cut to the heart and they were pierced. They asked an honest question and Peter gave an honest answer. And in verse 38, he says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I'll come back and talk more about that verse next week. And he gave the invitation and about 3,000 people got saved and about 3,000 people got baptized. That's why next week we're having a spontaneous baptism service. You don't have to get saved and go through a class before you get baptized. I'm not against a class. But I'm just saying that's not the biblical model. The biblical model was you get saved, you get baptized. There's not a probationary period. If you repent of your sins and you receive Christ, you can get baptized. Now, we can't draw up a standard better than what the Bible has already drawn. It's that. It's immediate baptism after we've been saved. Now, it ended after he finished the sermon. Look in verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. So Peter finished his sermon, and he did what? He gave an invitation. He said, in essence, what are you going to do with what you just heard? I just told you that Jesus is Lord, and that it was your sins, just like it was my sins that put Jesus on the cross. And you've asked, what should we do? And I'm telling you what to do. Repent, confess, turn from that sin. Stop doing it and receive Christ. And then be baptized. He gave an invitation. For a preacher to preach a sermon and not give the people who heard it a chance to respond. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have a come forward or even a stand up. You could do it. You could do, but I'm just saying for a preacher to preach a sermon and then finish it and say, let's pray and be gone. That, to, in my opinion, in my humble but accurate opinion, <laughs> that is doing that congregation a great injustice. 
that would be like a real estate agent spending all day yesterday showing her client houses and not giving that client an opportunity to buy a house. It would be like going to a restaurant and studying the menu and not being given a chance to order. It would be like a baseball game without the ninth inning. And on Friday in Arlington, aren't we glad we had a ninth inning for that game? <laughs> Down four to two, top of the ninth, two men on, Altuve up to the plate, pitch comes in, bam, over the left field wall, 5-4, Astros up 3-2. to two. I'm glad baseball games don't end after the eighth inning. They have nine innings, and I'm glad sermons don't end after the service. Don't end after the, there's an invitation, there's an opportunity for you to do what you need to do to make your peace with God. Back in September, I went, my dad went with me. We drove from Pasadena to Brownwood, Texas, I had been invited to speak at Howard Payne University, a Christian school there, a Baptist university, a great school. And I never knew how I got invited, but I, was, I, I went and it was a good experience. We got there. They told us to be at the chapel about 10.30. The ser- at 9.30, the service started at 10. I got, we got there at 9.30. I hooked up my microphone. They hooked me all up. They said, the service starts at 10. They said, you'll get up about 10.25, 10.20. When that clock says 10.45, you gotta quit. And you get the band up there, they sing one last song, students gotta be back to class at 11. 10.45 is your time. I said, okay. I got up there and started preaching. My microphone was no good. It, it was popping the whole time. Pop, 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 pop. I thought, man, it's gonna be a long, I done, we've driven all the way to Brownwood. I'm gonna have to hear myself pop for 25 minutes. But I thought, I don't have any authority around here. I don't work here. I'm gonna just pop and preach and smile the whole time. After about five minutes of popping, the preacher came up on that platform and the preacher said, hey, John, I can't take this. He gave me a handheld mic. I felt liberated. I felt like an evangelist, man. I said, man, this is what I've been missing right here. I preached my sermon. Preached out of Isaiah 26.3. God will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is stayed on him. I talked about how if you'll trust Jesus to save you, he'll save you and you'll have peace. But then if you'll trust Jesus in life, you'll have peace. Double peace, double shalom, perfect peace. That sermon had no fireworks, no great illustrations, some but not much humor. It was just straight on Bible preaching. I was mindful of the clock and it, I'm making the sermon a little shorter. I looked up, the clock says 10.37 and I'm thinking, well, I'm finished with my sermon. I told them all I planned on saying, it's 10.37. Then I'm thinking, we drove a long way to get here. Take those next eight. They gave you eight more minutes. Take every one of them. And so I said, I'm gonna take them to myself. I'm just thinking this while I'm talking to them. It was like God said, John, your sermon's over. Give an invitation. Do what you do in Pasadena. It's the same gospel. The gospel travels. It's not confined to one place. I gave the invitation. About 800 or so college students there. I said, today, if you want to make peace with God, if you want to know for sure that you're saved, I don't know how y'all normally wrap up a service around here, but here's what we're going to do today. The band came up. The band began to play quiet, very reverent, worshipful moment. And I led him in that prayer. And I said, if you today have prayed that prayer all over this chapel, this beautiful packed out chapel, 800, I said, I want you just to stand up and remain standing. The student stood. Another student stood. I was encouraging more to stand. I felt the spirit of God was there and more stood and another stood. And before it was all over, to the glory of God, 23 students stood up saying they had received Jesus Christ to be their Lord and to be their Savior. It's like God said, the gospel travels. 
After the service, I was down there with my dad. We were just talking to people. We didn't know very many people there. We knew some, but not most of the people. Man came up to me. He had a name tag on. I could tell he was a faculty member at that school. And he said, I want to shake your hand. He said, I can't tell you how long that I have struggled with whether or not I'm saved. And he said, what you told me today answers my question. And I want you to know I have put my faith in Jesus. I'm trusting in him. I'm experiencing that peace you described. And I feel like my life will never be the same again. My faculty member got saved at the chapel service. Before we had gone to Brownwood for that chapel, the school had called up here, one of the professors, and said, John, we have heard that your dad's coming with you. We want you and him after the chapel service to come to the preaching class. There'll be a room of preachers, and we want you to, and your dad, both of you, to tell how you prepare sermons. And I said to that professor, well, if you don't like what I do in chapel, you reserve the right to cancel that, because he said, no, it'll be fine. So we accepted that, and after the chapel was over, we were late getting out of the chapel just from talking to everybody. We walked in the class. It's another story there. Maybe I'll tell another day. My major professor from New Orleans Seminary from 1998 to 2001, Dr. Alan Jackson, who now is a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, Dunwoody Baptist Church, one of the great churches of the nation, he was in Brownwood that week as a guest lecturer. And I said to him before the service, Dr. Jackson, we got no business coming to, you're here from Atlanta, you teach the class. No, he said, I want you and your dad to come in there. He said, I've kept up with First Baptist Church in Pasadena for the last 20 years because I had you in my class. I had no idea he'd remember who I was. Dad and I got to the class about 11.15, and he was leading in a discussion. He said, John, he had two chairs seated out, one for my dad and one for me. He said, if y'all would just sit down there, Dr. Eben and John, just be seated. He said, we want to ask you some questions. He said, John, we were just sitting here, and we were critiquing your sermon. I thought that's what you were doing 22 years ago, critiquing my sermon. (laughs) He said, I said to the class, class, we just saw something special in chapel. 23 people just made decisions for the Lord. He said, did you notice that John preached a short sermon and gave time for the Holy Spirit to work during the invitation? And he said to me, John, do you always do it that way? Preach a short sermon and then give time for the Holy Spirit to work? (laughs) And before I could say, yes, sir, that's always my practice, just like I did it out there. My dad spoke up and said, he has never done that in all his life. And he ruined my reputation with my professor and with those students. He said, John, I was reminded. He said, I enjoyed the sermon. It was good. We need to hear about trusting God. But I just loved how you gave time at the end. So many times we preach long and there's no time left for people to do what they need to do. Today, have I preached short, medium or long? Medium, almost long. But I've left time today for you to do what you need to do. We, have, we try to end this service at 1215. We've got plenty of time. It's not 12.15. Today, if you have never been saved, if you're not sure that you're saved, but if anything from Peter's sermon has pricked your heart, stabbed your conscience, pierced your soul, and you're sitting there saying, John, I want to leave here. No, I want to be like that professor at Brownwood. I want to leave here knowing that I'm saved. I'm going to give you the chance to do what Peter gave a chance to do in Jerusalem. And that is to repent of your sins and to trust Christ with our heads bowed and eyes closed. If you'll pray this prayer, it's not not a prayer. It's not a magic prayer. There are no magic words. It's your heart. God looks upon the heart. You could just raise your hand to heaven and say, Jesus, save me. And you would be saved. 
but I'll put words in the prayer to help express what I know is in your heart. Say this now. We saw one in the first service do it, and you can do it now. Say, Lord Jesus, I want to be saved. I need to be saved. Forgive me of my sins. God, it was my sins, not just everybody else, my sins that put Jesus on that cross. I'm sorry, Lord. Forgive me. Change me. Make me the person that you want me to be. Come into my heart right now and make me a real Christian. 